Welcome to 21st Century Saints, a podcast and live stream for those affiliated with or adjacent to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the British Isles and around the world. Enjoy the show. Welcome to 21st Century Saints, a podcast and live stream series for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the British Isles and around the world. We are really excited for this episode tonight. Alara, are you excited? Woo! Alana's <laughs> buzzing. Alana, what's, what's these dates? It is the 28th of May, 2021. Thank you. So I'm your host, Jane Christie. This is my co-host, Alana Wilson-Brice. Alana, tell us why we're excited. Can I say it how I said it earlier? Yes, say it. Say it how you said it earlier. Because we have John freaking Dillon on our podcast. I'm going to be super polite. So I'm going to go with Dr. John Dillon and Alana's been going with John freaking Dylan all week. So yeah, we are welcome to 21st Century Saints, Dr. Dylan. <laughs> My pleasure. Nice to be with you both. It's an honor. Just to give our new viewers and, and you yourself, Dr. Dylan, a little bit of context. So we, I mean, we really are new. This this podcast is still uh, baby weeks old. Um, so Alana. Do you want to give us like a very quick, like 10 second bio of you first? Do you want me to give a 10 second yeah, bio? Really? Just a quick, a quick who you are, where we're from. Uh, so, so I'm Alana Wilson-Brice. Um, I am turning 40 next week. Uh, I am a single parent to an adorable but hardworking eight-year-old. Um, and I live in Airdrie in Scotland. Anything else? That's, that's all good. And... Uh, as for me, I am the one who is active in the church, um, but nuanced. I'm one of the cool ones, okay? Oh, yeah, I should have said that. I'm not active. <laughs> yeah, we're both one of the cool ones. And our goal is we're, hope, we're hoping to build a healthier church community. So within this podcast, we're speaking to that tension here in the United Kingdom of the push and pull of, of Mormonism. So as Alana's kind of taking a step back from church at the moment, um, and we don't know how that's going to play out. I'm still active. I don't know how it's going to play out either. Um, before we we start chatting to, to Dr. Dillon, um, Alana, can I ask, when was the first time you heard the name John Dillon? <laughs> so I was trying to think back to when. I would say it was a good few years ago now that I think you first mentioned him to me. So I'd heard of him. I can ask a little bit about him. Uh, didn't really... I'm not a podcast listener. Well, I wasn't, should I say. Um, and then recently, for some reason, well, I think it was when I started to really think about why I was taking a step back from church, why some of my family were leaving church. Um, and so I started listening to some of the podcasts um, of John Dillon and just absolutely loved them. So I'd say a couple of months back, I started listening to podcasts. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating to me that um, that for uh, as long as Dr. Dillon has been doing all of his work, I would say, I don't know if you would agree with this, that most active members of the church here in the UK have never heard of Mormon Stories podcast or have never heard of Dr. John Dillon, considering 
um, con considering most people who are sort of nuanced or have left the church have certainly heard. Um, so for those of you who don't know who Dr. John Dillon is, um, he has figured in the stories of most of our most of our journeys. Um, Dr. Dillon is the OG, the original Mormon podcaster. Um, the Mormon and non-Mormon worlds have watched Dr. Dillon's faith journey play out before our eyes. If you Google his name, you will see um, his name appears in coverage around the world. You will see the TED Talk that started it all thousands and thousands of hours of Mormon Stories podcast episodes. Um, you'll see his research work, his work as a clinician, and currently, I think especially, his work in the post-Mormon community. So what do our listeners need to know about who this guy is? We're going to ask the man himself, Dr. John Dillon. Um, I wanted to kick off by asking about the podcast and asking how'd that go. But first of all, could we could we get a mini bio from you about your life up until the point where you decided to start a podcast? Well, yeah. And again, thank you, Jane and Alana, for inviting me. I'm just so excited for what I'm calling uh, the British invasion of uh, of people from the UK. You know, whether it's Douglas Stilgo or Nemo or uh, obviously um, Peter Bleakley, um, or just all the different uh, players and all the different exciting activities, Sunstone UK, just all the different ways that uh, progressive and post-Mormons within the UK are starting to really emerge and create their own content and, and uh, have their own voice, find their own voice and express their own thoughts and feelings. Um, and it obviously, Mormonism in the UK goes way, way, way back. Uh, but I just want to say how excited I am to be a small part of uh, part of the emergence of the Mormon British invasion. So I had to start there. Um, uh, really quickly, just about who I am, I guess I have to start in the UK because I, I'm a Parkinson. That's my middle name. And my ancestors go back to uh, the British Isles. Um, my ancestors crossed, uh, well, traveled from the UK, either converted, some of them converted to the Mormon church in the UK in, in the 1800s. Others converted once they came here to the United States. But my my ancestors go through Samuel, Samuel Rose Parkinson, who was one of the early, um, you know, leaders of the church in, in, in the, of the Mormon church in kind of the Missouri, Illinois time period. Also Ezra T. Benson or Ezra Tap Benson. Um, also I'm, I'm a descendant uh, somehow of the Benson line. So I just want to say, I do consider the UK to be my primary heritage uh, or ancestry. Um, had to throw that in, but uh, I'm a sixth generation Mormon. And uh, my my ancestors crossed the plains, settled in Idaho and Salt Lake City. And uh, I was raised uh, Mormon, of course, mostly in Texas, not in Utah or Idaho. Um, but I was definitely raised an Orthodox devout uh, Mormon and did all the things, went to BYU, uh, served a mission in Guatemala, got married in the temple to my wife, Margie. We had four kids. And uh, I was living the Mormon dream. And uh, around age 30, 31, I had a faith crisis as a Mormon seminary teacher. 
living in Redmond, Washington, working for Microsoft, the Microsoft, uh, and um, had a faith crisis. And this was back in 2000, 2001, when there really wasn't a Mormon internet to speak of. Um, I, this is before iPods, which was before podcasts, which was before YouTube and Facebook. And I just realized, number one, how devastating it was to have a faith crisis, a Mormon faith crisis. And then I realized how um, there were no resources available to anyone who was going through it. There was no support. You just suffered alone. And I did suffer through years of de personal depression in my uh, personal life and uh, decided in 2004 to leave Microsoft and to try and create a solution to this problem. I didn't leave the church, even though I lost my Orthodox faith in the church. I stayed in the church another 14 years after I lost my faith because I believed that a more progressive um, form of Mormonism could be carved out from within the church. I wasn't interested in a schism. I wasn't interested in starting a new church. Uh, I thought, hey, maybe we can grow Mormonism into a really big tent that could include both Orthodox Mormons, but also liberal and progressive Mormons and even non-believing Mormons. So I started Mormon Stories podcast in 2005 with the desire to keep people in the church um, as an active believing, semi-believing, I, I should say, unorthodox, uh, non-traditional, nuanced believing Mormon. And I've been doing Mormon stories for 16 years. In 2009, I started my PhD in clinical and counseling psychology with the desire to help people who are coming to me seeking help with the depression, with the anxiety, with the marital strife. And uh, yeah, started the Open Stories Foundation in 2010, which is a nonprofit that the Mormon Stories podcast lives under. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I gave that TED Talk in 2013, which shared my research on the LGBTQ or the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, Mormon experience. Gave that TED Talk uh, advocating for um, support of same-sex marriage uh, for LGBT people and for Mormons. I also supported the ordained women movement um, in 2013. This led to me call, being called into a disciplinary council in 2014 by my bishop and stake president. And unfortunately, I was excommunicated in 2015. Um, and, but I've, uh, I've just kept plugging. And, uh, and here I am in 2021, 16 years into the life of Mormon Stories. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. I, I guess, I mean, my first question that, I, that I'm really wondering is that um, that TED Talk, we, so, so just to kind of give you guys a bit of background to sort of what life um, is, is like here, Alana may be distracted at any moment by her child coming in, which is awesome. We have real life going on. I also have um my husband is is amazing, but he um he is also here tonight um and could come bursting in at any moment just to be really funny. Um well, no, he's promised he won't, but he thinks he's funnier than he is. And uh, so if we do get any wise cracks from him coming into the room and introducing Alana and I as a, you know, hey, meet my wives. Um, th this is the kind of funny guy he is. So I just want to reassure anyone, if that happens, don't freak out. And also that we're not polygamists. Um, he just is, thinks he's really funny. But Charlie had, so he is a non-member. 
and he was asking so who is John Dillon and I had I had shown him this this TED talk and I mean I'm looking back thinking what's the problem like today do you think that would be as shocking today as it was then um no no back back then it, it the minority of the United States of Mormonism in the world supported uh, same-sex marriage. That that's back in 2012, 2013. What a, what a difference you know seven or eight years have made. Now, it's uh, same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states in the United States, and most of the developed you know uh, world in the in, you know throughout the globe now seems to be in support of same-sex marriage. And, and in honesty, mm-hmm. most most Mormons in the United States are in support of same-sex marriage now. Um, so yeah, it's it, seven or eight years, it, it's like everything's flipped. So I'm, yeah. I'm really happy about that. I feel, like, and, I feel like we were on the right side of history in that regard. Yeah, definitely. And what about um, the, the feedback? So while you're an active member of the church with with nuanced views you're doing this podcast um what kind of feedback are you getting from church members people who are active uh back in 2013 back then yeah yeah it, i was ignored so mormons uh i don't know if this is true in the uk but mormons in the united states are really really good at ignoring the elephant in the room and just avoiding any conversation about it so uh, my ward members, my stake members just uh, pretended like it never happened. And I did get called in by my bishop and stake president where they expressed some concerns. But by that point, um, I was getting a PhD. I had a global following. And I think they they knew that if they didn't tread lightly, uh, this could blow up into a global event. And that's kind of what happened eventually it did kind of blow up into a global event but the initial reaction was to ignore it and pretend it never happened <laughs> and and i'm going to come on to that global event in a second but um i, I mean i guess the the, the it, it really is the age-old question so then it gets to the point where you have been excommunicated that is extremely public clearly extremely traumatic um so at that point or even just for your own mental well-being, why didn't you? Why didn't you just let you know move on? Why didn't Why didn't you walk at that point? So once I was excommunicated, why didn't I just go yeah. away from kind yeah. of Mormon public Mormon discourse? Mm. You, you like you kept on going with Mormon Stories Foundations, having been through you know real trauma. Um, yeah. Wouldn't it be best for you just to go heal? Well, I feel like by the time I was excommunicated, I had, um, you know, uh, I was 14 years past my my own personal faith crisis. So I had had a lot of time to heal from my loss of faith. From I had had a lot of time to reconstruct my worldview. And I would say by the time I hit 2015 and my excommunication, I was pretty solid in my identity. I was pretty solid in my beliefs and my non-beliefs. I was pretty solid with my my wife, Margie. I was uh, solid with my family. So I don't know that I had a ton of healing left, again, because that was 14 years after my loss of faith. The reason I started Mormon Stories podcast was to uh, save lives and to save families. 
I had just seen too many marriages end in divorce that didn't need to end in divorce. Good people that just had religious differences. Um, I kind of feel like any religion that destroys a good marriage or a good family is doing something terribly wrong. Um, and I just saw too much pain and suffering, too many LGBT deaths by suicide. And so uh, I did Mormon stories to, um, to prevent, again, these sorts of things. And so the excommunication didn't really have anything to do with the main reason I was doing Mormon stories. I wanted to save families and lives before the excommunication, and that didn't stop once I was excommunicated. Mm, I love so that. Can I just ask a question just um, on excommunication? Um, obviously, not necessarily excommunication, just regarding speaking out about the church. Is excommunication in America quite known to happen a lot? Um, just because, so I, I have said this on the podcast before, I was excommunicated many years ago. Um, and then I, I made my way back to church. Don't know why. <laughs> um, but um, as I was telling a missionary um, who was teaching me at the time, you know, about my story about excommunication, um, they had said that, yeah, that that's something that seems to, to happen a lot over here. Like it's something they just throw around, like excommunication. So it made me wonder, is it not as common in America for excommunication to happen or... I would say in your average Mormon stake, which would be a, a cluster of, let's just say, eight to 10 congregations or wards, I would say there are a handful of excommunications every year. So most Mormon congregations might have one excommunication a year. I'm just kind of spitballing or guessing. Um, normally, the excommunications historically have been around uh, adultery or infidelity. Um, sometimes they're for things like, um, you know, going to prison, you know, committing some type of really bad uh, violation of the law. Uh, and, and those have been going on for a long, long time. What's changed over the past, you know, let's just say since 2013, is um, excommunications for what Mormons call apostasy have mm -hmm. increased exponentially. Starting with Denver Snuffer in 2013, we just started seeing this uptick. Once the internet started getting really influential, websites, blogs, podcasts uh, started getting influential. And the church, uh, the church who had tried so hard to hide its uh, troubling history and, um, you know, call feminists and gays great, you know, the enemies of the church. There's this famous quote in the early 80s where a Mormon church apostle said, gays, feminists, and intellectuals are the great threats uh, to the Mormon church. For many, many years, they were just able to silence and, and keep information from its membership and kind of keep people quiet. And if anybody spoke up, they could kind of crack down. Starting with 2005, 2006 with Google and then Facebook and then YouTube and then podcasts, the, the genie was out of the bottle. The church couldn't silence people anymore. And uh, people started becoming very vocal about, again, the problems with Mormon church history, problems with Mormon church doctrine, um, ways that the Mormon church was hurting marginalized groups, people of color, LGBT people, feminists, women, etc. And because the church couldn't silence people anymore, that's when the excommunications for apostasy started, started to increase. So it was Denver Snuffer in 2013, feminist Kate Kelly in 2014, 
me in 2015 and then Jeremy Runnels and then Bill Real and, um, you know, a lot of dear friends of mine, we've just seen more and more excommunications for apostasy. Um, the church started excommunicating couples with the, with the November, 2015 policy, the church declared same-sex marriage as an act of apostasy, which ironically put same-sex marriage um, in a more, in a more serious and severe classification than murder or incest or rape, um, which was blew all of our minds away. Like really marrying a person that you love of the same sex and committing to them for a life of love and commitment is more severe than pedophilia or rape or incest kind of blew our minds. But starting with 2015, the Mormon church started excommunicating same-sex married couples as well. And now we see 10, 20, 30, who knows how many excommunications per year acro across the globe for apostasy. And apostasy is just a fancy word for saying, um, for speaking up publicly about things that make the church uncomfortable. I just, I think I struggle with that a little bit because I think, you know, the, the, the things that I hear most people speaking out about is church history. It's real. It's factual. It happened. So why then do they just think, right, we're going to excommunicate these people? Because surely they can see, like yourself, it didn't stop you. Um, you know, Peter said it won't stop him from speaking out, you know, so I just think, why do they think that it's okay to continue to excommunicate people for speaking the truth? Um, why do they before, do it? Before you respond to that, could you also maybe just explain who Peter is, just for, you know, for our audience who maybe, maybe yeah, are so Peter Bleakley is um, an active member of the church who has himself been speaking out about the church and changes that he feels need to happen um, to keep the church in the UK and worldwide going. Um, and he is now facing a disciplinary council. Um, has it, is it this month? Has it happened yet? I, I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's it been is. delayed. It's been delayed oh, a little Yeah, bit. that's true. That's right. It was delayed. You're correct. Um, so he is facing a disciplinary council, um, which, which is sad really, because, you know, again, he's someone who is wanting to remain active he wants to be a part of the church but he just sees the things that you know are, are problematic and you know as i say things that need to change um to to keep the church going i guess yeah yeah and i just want to say i've had the pleasure of interviewing um on mormon stories podcast several uh several current or former mormons from the uk this includes Tom Phillips, uh, former stake president and um, former Mormon who received his second anointing. Uh, Nathan Lisko, dear friend, Alex Winters, Steve Bishop, uh, Stephen Bloor, Sean Coombs, and then Karen Adams from Scotland and uh, and Douglas Stilgo. Love all my, uh, my interviewees on Mormon Stories from the UK. I uh, just had to shout out. And I hope to interview Peter and Lynn Bleakley as soon as it's a, is a good fit for them. But, uh, as, and my heart goes out to, um, Peter and Lynn Bleakley, uh, because it's excommunication is no fun. It's a barbaric and a medieval practice, but, um, why did, why do the Mormon church leaders do it? It's really, I think it's a really important thing for them to do from their perspective, because, um, as all high demand religions do, they need to control, uh, they need to control three things. They need to control their members' behavior. 
they need to control the information that gets to the members and then they need to control the thoughts that the members have. And I don't mean to make it sound so sinister, but this is called the bite model that um, cult expert Stephen Hassan has uh, cultivated. And I'm not, uh, definitely, I don't believe that it's healthy or constructive to, you know, refer to churches as cults, especially when you're talking to members of that church. So that's not what we're doing here, but we do learn from the literature about high demand religions that um, oftentimes they have to hide from their membership their factual history, because usually any high demand religion has a troubling history. And if people knew the full history, they would either never join the church or they would probably leave it. And that is certainly the case within the Mormon church. And so we have for almost 200 years, the Mormon church hiding from its members, very critical uh, and troubling information like Joseph Smith's folk uh, magic, treasure digging, um, like the translation of the Book of Mormon, not with the Urim and Thummim, but with the stone in the hat. And a hat. Yep. Like Joseph Smith's uh, marrying of over 30 women, uh, his polygamy and his polyandry, his marrying of other men's wives. The list goes on and on and on. And um, because there's so much troubling history, and because the Mormon church has hid it for so long, it can't have its current and former members speaking publicly to educate the members about the problems. Also, you can't have uh, current and former members speaking out publicly about all the divorces that are happening, all the people that are leaving, all the deaths by suicide for LGBTQ Mormons, because all the racism and the sexism and the homophobia, because that makes Mormon church leaders look bad. It makes them look mean. It makes them look uninspired. And it's just all bad. And so what the church has to do is um, punish and label as anyone who speaks out publicly as bad, as dangerous, as satanic, as an apostate. And once they label me as a bad apostate, once they label Peter Bleakley as apostate, once they label Douglas Stilgo or Tom Phillips as a bad, evil, dirty um, satanic person, that sends an immediate signal to the remaining membership of the church that these people are dangerous, that the information that they're sharing must be bad and tainted because they're bad and tainted with apostasy, with excommunication. And if then the members don't receive that information, then they can't start wondering Oh, what if the church isn't what I thought? What if the church isn't true? What if the brethren aren't inspired? What if the, Joseph Smith was, uh, you know, uh, a charlatan? What if the Book of Mormon is fiction and not a historical document? The church can't have its members having those thoughts because then it leads to, well, do I want to stay a member? Do I want to keep paying my tithing? Do I want to keep raising my kids in this church? Do I want to you know, go on a mission. And so uh, it's like that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, that sounds that? like those sounds, those sound like very healthy questions to me. Um, and, and I guess that's my interest. My, my interest really lies in how people are experiencing the church. So while I have had really positive experiences my faith journey has been enlightening and exciting and stimulating i haven't really had to struggle with any of the pain but i've seen so many people that i love being wrecked 
and us not being able to talk about that. So my, um, I, I guess what I'm, I'm really fascinated by is the power of people's stories, which you are, you are sharing through through your podcast. It has stayed relevant this whole time. It is still, you know, it, it, it's still top of the podcasts. It's still the one uh, that, that people are listening to. And yet, you know, I was I was joking with um. I was joking earlier on, but it's, it's perfectly true. It would be easier, I think, to uh, to speak to our bishops and uh, talk about the fact that you know we, we may be watching pornography or we may have had an extramarital affair than it is to say I've been listening to uh, John Dillon and Mormon stories. That's you know what what do you do with that? So I think there's a difference in the experience of excommunication and church discipline for. Um, for moral issues than there is for you know with the experience of of possibly um when, when we're talking about um yeah seeing the controversial things or or possibly apostasy so what i want to know is why do you think it's why is mormon stories as a podcast still relevant today and what is the feedback that you're getting from active members yeah we have uh currently serving bishops who listen to Mormon stories. We have currently serving uh, stake presidents and stake presidency members listening to Mormon stories. We have uh, currently serving missionaries uh, listening to Mormon stories. We, uh, yeah, we have a large, very large listenership of active, even believing or semi-believing members of the church. And I think the, the way that we've tried to stay relevant on Mormon stories is um, rooted in the whole philosophy of the podcast itself. I don't try and be a pundit where I'm always trying to, you know, root the podcast in my opinions, in my, um, in my thoughts, in my feelings, in my own life experience. What I started uh, from the very beginning doing was just having people tell their stories. And I've tried really hard to be fair and balanced. So I'll have Richard Bushman, a faithful Mormon historian and patriarch. Uh, I'll interview him. I'll, I'll interview Terrell and Fiona Gibbons, faithful apologetic Mormons. I'll interview true believing Mormons. I'll interview Tom Phillips, people who have left the church. I'll interview people from Australia, from the UK, from the United States, from Latin America. It's just all about people's authentic stories. I work very hard to not interject my own opinions in there to let people tell their stories, to encourage them to be authentic, to be raw, to be vulnerable. And it is so um, hard to go through a Mormon faith crisis to contemplate your whole world falling apart. Maybe your marriage, maybe your identity, maybe your morality, maybe your spirituality, maybe how you raise your kids, that people can't get enough of hearing about people's faith journeys. It makes them feel not alone. It makes them feel that they're not crazy. And it gives them tools and tips and tricks and encouragement that they can live a healthy, happy life, either staying in the church as a progressive Mormon, which we are totally in support of, if that's what people want to do, or if they feel like they need to or want to leave the church, we give them tools and tips and tricks to heal and grow outside. So we try and be neutral. We try and be story rooted and we try and be authentic and just let people tell their stories. And I think we were, we evolved to be storytelling and story listening creatures. I think we evolved to sit around the campfire and hear stories. And so 
what's more to love? Uh, what do people love more than a good story? And I think that's what keeps Mormon stories relevant. And what does happen, though, um, I think, especially watching um, watching the evolution of the podcast, what is really um, and not frustrating, maybe frustrating for me, is it's, it's gotten to the point where I'm listening to Mormon stories and you'll say something about your, you'll maybe... Um, share your experience in a you know a, a very very supportive way and I think I want to know more I want to oh, I, I want to hear a bit more about you know that while I'm loving this story what what's going on with with John and how are you experiencing this so I'm gonna we're gonna ask some some specific questions about your experience in a moment but before we get there could, could I ask you just to share um most, I would say, most members, active members of the church in the UK, we live, we we very much live in the Mormon bubble, which is not inherently a bad thing, but it means there's a lot of context that we don't necessarily have. So could you give us the sort of um, what you're seeing from your position, give us a sort of bird's eye view of what's happening in Mormonism in, 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 in 2021? Where are we at? Okay. Uh... Well, I think that the church, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, uh, the Mormon church liked to almost boast that it was one of the fastest growing religions in the world. And um, there, was that, uh, there was that scripture in Daniel 2 in the, in the Old Testament that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it would roll forth and consume all nations. There was this real headiness that the Mormon church was just skyrocketing in growth. There were projections that by now uh, the Mormon church would have tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of members. And, you know, that, that continued through my mission where I served in Guatemala. My mission sometimes baptized over seven or 800 people a month. Sometimes there were companionships that would baptize 40 people a month. The growth was just crazy. And, um, there were prophecies and predictions that temples and chapels would dot the globe. Um, and uh, there was a real headiness and a real confidence about being Mormon. You fast forward to 2021, that's all gone away. It's gone away to the point where the Mormon church used to publish its uh, statistics of its membership statistics every year in general conference. Uh, uh, growth rates have slowed to such a degree that the Mormon church stopped releasing its growth statistics during general conference because it doesn't want to signal to the members that the growth has slowed to such a degree. So now the church is growing at a late rate less than 1%. And the only reason it's growing at all is because of the birth rate in the United States. So still on average, the average married couple in the United States a Mormon couple has three children, and that is the only reason the Mormon church is not in decline right now today in 2021. Um, if you look everywhere else in the world, in, in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, in developed Asia, even in Latin America, definitely in the United States and Canada, subtract out the birth rate of Mormons, the Mormon church is in a free fall. It's losing more members every year by death, defection, um, disbelief, and just a disassociation 
then they're um, then they're baptizing through the missionary efforts. We're seeing a dramatic decline in the number of missionaries. The church was able to kind of fudge those numbers by encouraging women, uh, all women to serve missions as well, because the number of men was in decline. Then they encouraged women uh, to become missionaries. All of a sudden there was this bump in missionaries. And now we see that number in, in free fall as well. So we're seeing a decline in the number of missionaries, a decline in the number of members all throughout the world. Um, we're seeing chapels and stake centers being closed throughout the world. We're seeing wards and stakes being merged, not just outside of the United States, but within the United States as well. Um, and, and we're seeing the church change its message from we're going to take over the world to we're just the salt. We're the salt in the meal of, of the world. We're only meant to be a small church anyway. We're a peculiar people. And you're just seeing a, a, a general decline in Mormonism. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of where I would start in my description of where we are today. And then what we're, you're also seeing is this battle um in terms of doctrine and theology within the church, we have this history of orthodoxy where, uh, you know, we're the one true church and Joseph Smith was the one true prophet of God. And the Book of Mormon is a, a translation of ancient records from golden plates. And the current prophet is the one true leader of God on the earth. You're seeing the church realize that that, um, as, as they say in the United States, that dog doesn't, that dog doesn't hunt anymore. And you're seeing so many people go, wait, Joseph Smith is one true prophet. He was a polygamist. And the Book of Mormon is a translation. No, wait a minute. It's a 19th century work of Bible fan fiction. And, you know, the Book of Abraham, that's not scripture. That that translation from a supposed translation from Egyptian hieroglyphics and papyra um, doesn't really uh, doesn't really meet the um, the scrutiny of modern Egyptologists. And you're basically seeing the church realize that so much of its doctrine and theology doesn't survive modern scrutiny, scientific scrutiny. And so you're seeing the church have to sort of simultaneously hold on to its orthodoxy and then promote liberal and progressive theologians like Terrell and Fiona Gibbons, like Patrick Mason, like Spencer Fluman and others, and then have these battles from within where they seem uh, confused and unsure about who they really are. And then you get people like Douglas Stilgo and Peter and Lynn Bleakley and others that try and call the church on its uh, inconsistencies, like Jeremy Runnels, like Bill Real, like RFM, Radio Free Mormon, like Lindsay Hanson Park and others like me. And you see the church just sort of frantically trying to whack-a-mole, excommunicate people, promote uh progressive and liberal theologians while still clinging to its orthodox past doesn't know what to do with gay and lesbians anymore it's trying to love them but also excommunicate them it's trying to say we love women but we but we hate feminism and uh, the church is really confused and shrinking that would be my description of the state of mormonism alana how are you oh, seeing that playing out i was just thinking like so again, without mentioning names, like I, I was having a discussion with a couple of my family members and just starting to talk to them about my reasons for why I was questioning things and why I was taking a step back and felt I couldn't go to church. And, and you know, I, I made the statement that the church want people to believe that the church is growing. And that family member said, but it is. 
And I'm like, it's not. And, you know, I almost got into a little debate, but I thought, you know, I'm not wanting to go down that road because of who it was. I thought I'm not, I'm not there to try and shape your testimony or, you know, anything like that. But I do believe that that people need to wake up and realise that the things that they've believed that when once where Jane's the opposite, she's all about protecting testimonies. But and it's not it's not that I want to um you know, tell people to tell them to leave the church. That's not my intention at all. But I just think this is our church and we don't truly know the true history of our church. Like for me, obviously I'll not go into detail, but I just feel like I've been lied to my whole life. You know, I've I've been in and out of the church my whole life. I've struggled with it, but due to mental health and things like that. But recently, like you were saying, John, that this has been really I would call it a faith crisis in the sense that I'm really struggling now with all the things that I grew up and all the things that I taught in my mission. I taught people this and I'm thinking, did I teach people a load of lies, you know? So, so for me, it's, you know, I, I can see in our own local area, the decline in numbers. I mean, you know, we're losing people fast, especially in our own ward. Um, and, you know, the way I, I look at it is I think, surely the church need to wake up and look at why they're losing members and fix it. If you want your church to survive, why are you not trying to fix it instead of excommunicating people, shunning people, you know, and not being inclusive and accepting of all people? You know, for me, it's simple. So why can't they see it? So I I would ask, um, you know, that I think this is the part, because we're going to come on and talk about fixing it if it should be fixed what would fixing it look like um but yeah let's let's talk for a moment about testimonies because okay yes guys back off people's testimonies because <laughs> um i i see a whole ward of people that i love being plummeted towards faith crisis uh, because we want to share all of this stuff and what, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fragile people who, you know, maybe you don't feel fragile, but, you know, is, is your testimony fragile? Talk to me about the impact that you've had, John. You, you've seen how this plays out. People start listening to Mormon stories. They maybe start asking questions. Um, what's your, Wouldn't it, would, is it kinder just to let people be and just let them enjoy church the way they want to enjoy it? Yeah, I um, I just want to say, in spite of the rumors that that sometimes people like to put forward or the or the claims people like to make about me and my motives, I've never once had the desire to take anyone out of the church. Mm -hmm. I've actually never had a desire to destroy faith, and I've never had a desire to destroy the church or harm the church. Now, people aren't going to believe that, but that's how I feel in my heart. What I do believe is in this notion of informed consent. Uh, and and it, it basically is as simple as this. If people are going to give their lives to an organization, if they're going to give 10% of their income to an organization, if they're going to get married um, within the structure of an organization, if they're going to give their kids to an organization, spend two years of their lives serving a mission for an organization, become salespeople in effect for the organization, they deserve to know the basics about the organization, what it is, what its history is, and and how the organization harms people. Um, that's that's called informed consent in the you know in the in the free world, in the developed world, in the educated world, and that's 
that's kind of my core passion. So the problem is, is that for a couple centuries, people were people converted to the Mormon church in the British Isles. Missionaries would go to the British Isles, convert people to Mormonism saying, hey, there's this wonderful prophet back in the United States. He talks to God. He's got new scripture like the Bible, and you should go there and be part of Zion. And people go, well, I've heard those Mormons are practicing polygamy. And the missionaries in the British Isles, some of them who were practicing polygamy themselves would tell the investigators, that's not true. We don't practice polygamy. Polygamy is forbidden by the Mormon church. And thus you have the beginnings of deception that led to people joining and people becoming members. And that deception has continued from then until now. And so it's, it's tricky because if people are happy and healthy in the church, and I believe that many are, I don't believe that that is something that should be messed with. People should be allowed to believe and follow what they want. And, and if people are truly happy and healthy um, and they don't want to know anything else about their church, then I really believe that they should be left alone. The people that I think about and the people that I try and reach are the people who are being harmed by the church or who would want to know the truth about the church if there were a way to know it. Um, because I can just say that I know many, many, many people who, um, who once they learned the truth about Mormonism said, I would never have served a two-year mission for the church if I had known this. I would never have married in a Mormon temple where my parents couldn't even attend the wedding. I would never have done a temple Mormon wedding if I had known this about the church. I certainly would have never given 10% of my income for decades and decades of my life. Um, maybe I would have had less kids. Maybe I would have put off kids. Maybe I would have many women who said I would have pursued an education and pursued a career before starting to have kids. There are all sorts of people who would have made very, very different life decisions if they had been given all the information. And so my philosophy is don't run around telling children that Santa Claus doesn't exist. If somebody is truly happy and healthy in Mormonism, you know, my goal is not to spoil their lives. And, and frankly, if someone's mental state or life circumstances are such that if they were to stop believing in the church, their life would turn unhappy and sad and, and unhealthy. I don't want to mess with those people at all. I just want to give people who want to know the truth all the information so that they can make educated, informed decisions. And I guess as a side note, if the Mormon church can maybe stop hurting people, stop destroying families, stop causing LGBT people to end their lives by suicide. If we can have the church become more healthy, that would be a bonus. Um, but that's kind of my approach. Uh, and I hope that makes sense. It, it really Great. does. And while I, I mean, I, I think it's I, I love that, you know, sort of I'm framed as the, you know, the the active trying to make it work person who's really worried about testimonies. And it's absolutely true. However, um, I see my my best friend here who I mean I, I I feel like I'm I'm being you know honest when I say this that, that your main problem with going to church is simple kindness. You're not seeing a Christian church that you attend to. And that I would say, you know, most people who um I know and love have left it, it, rather than has has been all of these major issues, it's just simply we're not 
being a kind faith or we're not talking about our pain. Um, and, and so while those testimonies are really, really important to me, I feel really angry that um, we have to balance that with a with a dying a, a dying church. We're, we're gonna we're gonna be as as blunt as um as as Peter Bleakley who's calling it out as a dying church. We we're not replacing the people who are leaving. Um, we're my friends, the people who have names who we love, our friends. Um, that we covenanted to to be there for and to to support and to mourn with, they're all leaving because they're not getting that. And so what we're going to be left with are empty churches all over the United Kingdom because we cannot fill them. And so the people who are feeling like they can go to church every Sunday, um, who will go to church every Sunday regardless of, of where that, you know, if you need to travel an extra 20, 40 miles to get to church on a Sunday, you're going to do that. You're going to keep on worshipping the way you worship. But then there's no one left. There's no one left to replace that. And what we're seeing in the UK here is, it's almost like an early warning system. Um, Peter Blakely is calling it out in years. He's saying within five years, there will be no church here, or there certainly will not be a church that, that one would recognise um, as the one we have today. That's that's my worry. I feel like if you have been a member of the church for your whole life and you have not studied your own history, I feel like, shame on you. Um, that said... I feel so fearful for when that happens. So what I want to do with this space is to be able to say, okay, you may hear some hard things. Um, I know that the stuff that you hear um, on Mormon stories may be really um, difficult to get your head around. You may feel some dissonance there. However, this is an amazing space to be in. It's healthy. And these questions that you're going to ask of yourselves are healthy questions and lead to a stronger people. Um, that's that's my that's my uh, soapbox moment. I want to ask you, John, what does faith transition look like? When when someone in a high demand religion and and let's just say Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Evangelical Christians, um, Orthodox Jews, it it's not like losing your faith as an Episcopalian or you know Church of England or Lutheran or Methodist. You know, in 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 more uh, Protestant, mainline Protestant sort of religious faith traditions within Christianity, you can stop attending the Presbyterian Church or the Lutheran Church or the Church of England. Nobody really notices. Nobody really cares. Your parents are like, oh, whatever works for you. Um, you can you can switch from one church to another. Uh, you know, you can attend one church in one town. And then if you move, oh, that church isn't around. I'll attend this other one. You could just kind of pick and choose, swap churches, and it's it's not a big deal. When you leave a high-demand religion, it is literally like, uh, you know, it's like having your heart and your brain ripped out of your body. It's like losing your identity, who you are. You, you It can jeopardize your marriage. It can um, strain your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with your children. It, it, it'll, it'll eviscerate you in terms of your spirituality. You don't know what's moral anymore. You don't have any friends. You don't have any community. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. Um, and it can lead to all sorts of unhealthy. It can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. Again, depor, um, divorce. And it can even lead to 
uh, suicidal ideation and and potentially um, death by suicide. It is a very, very serious thing um, to lose your, your faith and to contemplate leaving a high demand religion. And I would say the number one reason is family rejection. In a high demand religion, there are parents that will disown you if you leave your faith. There are spouses. Tom Phillips is a wonderful example. Here, Tom Phillips was a stake president twice in the Mormon church. He knew Jeffrey R. Holland, the apostle. He had had the second anointing, which is the super secret sacred uh, ritual that is done in Mormon temples. He was in it to win it and super well respected. As soon as Tom Phillips realized that the Mormon church wasn't true and tried to tell his wife and kids, they all literally left him um, kicked, you know, basically kicked him out of the home. And as I understand it, he now lives alone on some island, completely outcasted from his immediate family. Um, children can be disowned or disinherited. Um, children can tell their parents if their parents lose their faith, we don't want any association with you. We're not going to give you access to your grandchildren if you no longer believe. That family rejection is unfortunately the sure sign of an unhealthy organization. Absolutely. And I think that's at the core of what uh, makes um, leaving a high demand religion and a faith crisis so difficult. Um, you'll literally have your spouse divorce you, take the kids and try and alienate your own children from you. And if they can, these are using United States legal terms, sue for full custody of the children to keep you from having access to your own children. And that's all that family rejection is on top of no longer knowing who you are, why you exist on the earth, what spirituality is, no longer having friends in a church community. You stand to lose almost literally everything when you have a faith crisis within a high demand religion like Mormonism. Yep, absolutely. Um, the question that's, um, that, that Mark has just asked on the screen is, is that rejection common in the UK? Um, Alana, do you want to comment on that? And then John? I, I, um, I personally don't hear of it all that often, um, certainly locally. I'm sure it does happen. Um, obviously, I live in Scotland. It's not something I hear of um, very often. You know, I've had a few family members leave the church and throughout my life I've left the church and I've never... Uh, been shunned or, you know, threw out the door uh, by any of my family. Um, I mean, just when, John, when you were talking there about, you know, rejection and things like, I, I do recall a missionary who was here on his mission in our ward many years ago, and he just looked miserable, miserable. And I had a conversation with him, and he was only on his mission because his parents had told him that if he did not serve a mission, he would no longer be welcome in the family home. So he felt he had no option but to go on a mission. And he was miserable. And he ended up, he did go home because he, he couldn't do the work. And, and it saddened me to hear that because I'm thinking your relationship with your family should not be dependent on a religion. It shouldn't be dependent on whether you serve a mission. Um, you know, so I was quite sad to hear that. And, and Lana, could I maybe... Could I maybe ask you though, could you maybe speak to the, the fear of that happening? So while it might not actually happen, you know, and I'm thinking about conversations that we've had, what about, you know, could could someone feel comfortable to tell a parent, I don't want to go to church anymore? What's um, what's that like? I guess for me this time round, I was a bit worried about telling my parents and not for the, the reason that 
you know, I was worried that, that they would reject me. Um, I guess it's just because I've been in and out the church, you know, when I when I had my little girl, that's when I felt I needed to, to get my life back because I'd lived such a life that, that was not very much not in consistency with the church teachings, um, partying and all these things, you know, and I just felt when I became a mum that I had to change um, and, and I felt that the way to do that was to go back to church, but I guess, you know, hence why before our lockdown here, um, I, I was going to church, I was there in body, but I just wasn't there. And you know what, I, I wasn't, like, I was having anxiety about going to church, I was struggling to do my calling in primary, and it was all, I knew that I had to leave, but I did have that slight fear of, you know, that, oh, here we go again, she's leaving the church, and how others would view me within the church, that, oh, she's leaving again, and, you know, so that was the kind of fear I had, is how people would judge me and how people would feel towards me. But through lockdown, I've realised how much happier I am not having that anxiety and not having that worry. And that's why I've said for now, I'm not going back because why why affect my mental health by going to, to church? You know, I've worked so hard over the years to get my mental health to a place where mm. I'm able to live a pretty good life. And, and that wasn't happening while I was attending church. So, John, what are you seeing coming from the UK? Are you seeing that kind yeah, of rejection? Yeah, so... I can totally uh, see that um, it's a less severe experience sometimes in places like the UK uh, leaving the church uh, than, than in the United States, and, and especially in places like Utah and Arizona and Idaho, which are states in the United States that are predominantly Mormon. And that's because, um, you know, most I would guess that so many people in, in countries like the UK have so many non-Mormon connections, so many non-Mormon family members, that if uh, if all if all Mormons in the UK experience such severe consequences for losing their faith, um, it would have this ricochet effect that would really be devastating, even more devastating to the church in the UK than it currently mm -hmm. is. And so there's this... So what I described is like, let's just say, a very common experience within Utah Mormonism or Idaho Mormonism or Arizona Mormonism. But there's also kind of this next level down that I'm going to guess is more ubiquitous across, you know, kind of globally. And that's the situation where maybe you're not kicked out. Maybe you're not immediately divorced from your spouse. Maybe your parents don't disown you but you're viewed by your Orthodox believing family members as a disappointment. There's yep. this saying that I like to have, which is um, a, a Mormon child can cure cancer or uh, obtain the Nobel Peace Prize, and they'll still be a disappointment to their parents if they lose their faith in and or leave the Mormon church. And so one step down from uh, from being being kicked out of everyone's life and fully rejected is just always knowing that you're a disappointment to your parents, you're 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 dangerous to your siblings, you're scary, and so they may not kick you out of their lives, but you just realize that your friends, your community, your family all see you as as sad, as broken, as inadequate, as a disappointment, as fallen, and I can just promise you that um, that type of treatment by the people that you trust and love and care about most will lead to sadness, depression, 
anxiety, insecurity, and instability in your life. So I've painted the most stark um, possibility, but but try living your life as a constant disappointment to your to your spouse, to your parents, to your children, to your siblings, and to all your friends and family, and see you know see how happy you're able to be under those circumstances. And, I, and what I see bears that out. There is an absolute fear of rejection that leads to um, people behaving in ways that are inauthentic. Um, that um, it, it's just if you had, you know, the kind of support system where you knew um, that no matter what you choose to do, your parents are going to love you. People do know that, but there's that, there, there really is that fear. Um, John, then can you speak to, when we're thinking then of a nation full of uh, members of a faith community, a huge proportion of which are in some kind of spiritual pain or may experience that in their lives, um, experiencing spiritual trauma, you're seeing this played out worldwide. The thing that we hear constantly um, from our pulpits is that, you know, this is this is just the, the sifting the the wheat and the tears that this is so could you maybe speak to that language that we're hearing to justify why people are feeling the way they're yeah one of the one of the rules of a high demand religion is they can never be responsible for something that that goes wrong you know um we'll get to what the church leaders can and can't do to make this better but one of the um, double binds that they're in is that they want to make positive change, but if they make certain changes, then it looks like they're caving into social pressure or they're contradicting teachings of past leaders. Um, and so you've, you've got this dilemma where the church can never admit wrong. In fact, uh, Peter Bleakley talks about this in his wonderful series called Mormon Civil War. One of our uh, top leaders in the Mormon church, Dallin H. Oaks, he's in the first presidency. In other words, he's top two, probably the second highest ranking Mormon in the world. He's an attorney who has gone on record as saying, we, the church, never apologize. And the reason that they never apologize is they can't ever admit that they've done anything wrong. And so what the church is in this double bind about is it's got all this hemorrhaging, it's got all these problems, but it can't ever admit that it's wrong or it makes it look like it's not being led by God or they're disobeying God or they're not hearing God's communication. And so what they have to do is instead of take responsibility for their mistakes, they have to blame the members. And so this whole sifting of the wheat versus the tares is, is kind of like called blame reversal. Instead of the church saying, yes, we were racist by keeping people of color, black people, out of temples and, and, and out of um, full fellowship until 1978. Yes, we taught you wrong about how the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham was translated. Yes, we hid to you the fact that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. Instead of taking responsibility, they have to find someone else to blame. And so they have to negatively label people who leave as, as goats, as weak, as fallen, as sinners, as dark, as loathsome. And these are not words I'm making up. These 
are the types of words as, as being offended, as wanting to sin, as never having a testimony to begin with. This is the type of language that a high demand religion has to use to label and blame um, people that are having that are not having a, a crisis of faith so much as they're having an awakening towards truth. They're mm -hmm. waking up to truth. They're seeing, they're getting true information, credible information. Their consciences are pricked. They're sad about the deaths of LGBT people. They're sad about the church's racist past. They're sad about the treatment of women, which they should be. Their consciences are now becoming enlightened. They're becoming awakened to the truth. But then instead of being congratulated and um, lauded and heralded for their awakening towards better treatment of people and an enlightenment towards truth, the church has to talk down about them, warn others about them, um, blame them for what's going on, and demean them by saying that they were offended, wanted to sin, never had a testimony to begin with. And we're looking for some cheap way out. And, and that's just the way the church has to handle uh, uh, its crisis, honestly. Yeah. Well, if the church isn't growing according to, you know, prophecy, it's it's not God's fault, right? It's got to be our fault. Yeah, and God can't be wrong, which means the church leaders can't be wrong. So it must be the members that are that are wrong. Alana, sorry, I, you no, I was just thinking along the lines of, you know, when, when you were saying there, John, that they won't admit when they're wrong. But aren't we all taught to admit, admit our wrongdoings? You know, we're taught that through repentance. So why can they not do the same? You know, it's to me, I mean, I, I, I'm a very, Jane gets annoyed at me for saying this, but, you know, I'm a, a little thinker. I'm not, you know, but that, that to me, it just sounds simple. Like, how much better would it be for their church if they just said, you know, we were wrong and we are sorry. And, you know, we're taught to admit our wrongdoings. We're taught to show repentance and saying we're sorry to the people we've hurt. So why can't they do the same thing? I don't, I, just in my head, I, I can't understand it when they're teaching something, but they're not practicing it themselves. Yeah, it's it, it really comes down to this. One of the unique value propositions of Mormonism that started with Joseph Smith, uh, the, the way the church, the Mormon church spins the narrative is um, Christians prior to the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, stopped believing that God spoke to humans through prophets. So if you look at the Old Testament in the Bible and the New Testament, you've got this model of God speaking to Moses, who then speaks to the people. God speaking to Noah, God speaking to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. And then you've got Jesus who comes, and then you've got um, more prophets and apostles like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, there's this idea that God communicates to the people through the prophets. And then once the Bible kind of gets sealed and written and published from, let's just say, 200 AD to, to 1830, Christians are all just basically saying, yeah, well, God's already said what he has to say. He stopped talking to men through prophets. Now you just got to read the Bible, and that's all you need. Joseph Smith came along and said, no, 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 this is where... The, the Christian world fell into apostasy. In reality, God still speaks to humans um, through prophets. And I, Joseph Smith, am a, a prophet of the modern dispensation. And so from Joseph Smith to Brigham Young to John Taylor, all the way to Russell M. Nelson today, the core value proposition of the Mormon church is that God is still speaking to his prophets 
in the Mormon church. And so how can it be then if God told Spencer W. Kimball or Harold B. Lee or David O. McKay that black people can't receive the priesthood, how can it then be that Russell M. Nelson today would say, hey, I'm so sorry, those prophets in the past got it wrong. We apologize for the treatment of people of color. Now we'll say that that all was wrong and we're sorry. As soon as Russell M. Nelson does that, members go, hmm. So if David O. McKay and Joseph Smith and Brigham Young got it wrong, then, well, then why can we, how in any way can we trust that you, Russell M. Nelson, are actually speaking to, um, speaking to God today? Well, if, if, if uh, Thomas S. Monson got it wrong about LGBT people, and actually the church was harming LGBT people, and now the church is apologizing for all the thousands of deaths that occurred because of its LGBTQ policies, then why should we believe you now, Russell M. Nelson, that you're speaking to God? And if you're not speaking to God, Russell M. Nelson, if you're just like every other pastor or preacher or teacher or pope, why would I want to pay 10% of my income to your church? Why would I want to serve a two-year mission for your church? Why would I want to become a, a missionary and a salesperson for your church if your leaders are flawed and and you, you're not your leaders aren't don't have a better um, direct line of communication with God than than people who aren't Mormon? And so the leaders are in this double bind where they can't apologize and they can't renounce past teachings. And they can't say they're sorry, even though they're a Christian church, even though Christ taught repentance, the leaders can't do it, or they risk the entire membership realizing that there's a man behind the curtain, that the that the man behind the curtain is just pulling the levers, but that but that they're really not meeting the great Oz. They're just meeting a man like every other man behind a curtain pulling levers. That's something I was going to say though. That that's something you hear often, but they're still human, right? You know, humans make mistakes. We all make mistakes. So, I mean, I, I do believe that sometimes it, I'll probably get shot for saying this, but I do believe that sometimes they speak from their own ideas and not through, you know, the 2015 policy for me is just a prime example of that. So did God just suddenly wake up one day and change his mind and say, sorry, you need to change that policy? No, I believe they did it because they were losing too many people. Well, and that's the, that's that's when I talked about the church being confused in 2021. It 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 needs to have double speak. This is another um, trait of a high demand religion. It needs to be able to say, "Yeah, our leaders aren't perfect; they're just humans," and follow the prophet, right? Yeah, we've got to, you know, sometimes we've made mistakes in the past, but then if Peter Bleakley says, okay, let me list the mistakes that you've made in the past so that you can be held accountable for it, well, they're going to excommunicate Peter Bleakley. And so the church now is in the state of, we love LGBT people, but don't get same-sex married or we're going to excommunicate you. Yeah. Women are awesome in the church, but women need to stay home and not really get a full education and just have lots of babies. And we're not going to let them be leaders in the church. The church is now having to constantly engage in doublespeak, yeah. speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And it's becoming quite confusing for the members. They don't know what to believe or who to trust. Yeah. And so bringing it back to the people, Bringing it, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically about names and, uh, you know, people that we love, people in our ward that we've we've spent, we've built memories with, we've invested in their stories, they've invested in ours. The people who will show up for us when it counts still, 
And, you know, we're, we're talking about Peter Bleakley being being one of those people. I don't think I've ever been as affected by um, of all of the the excommunications at a really high level that have been happening. I think this one's probably hit me hardest because Peter is part of the vision that I have for the church. If we can hear um, Elder, when he was president at Uppsdorf, getting so close to apologizing, you know, we need to, we need to do better. And, you know, that being the kind of thing I love to hear, Peter's listing it. Um, if you can hear the positives and what he's saying about a faith that he loves, here's how we can do better. That we're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the wheat and the tears is just things to be burned and gotten rid of. The church can be Sparta. Uh, we, you know, we, we decide we, we, we're going to move on past this um, because that rock still somehow conversely has to still keep rolling. Um, and, and I've experienced this with having a disabled son too. When there's, when there's not a place for you, we just have to keep on doing our thing. So what I want to ask about bringing it back to people, and actually I really want to just re-emphasize this tonight. Um, we, we've said it before, but Peter, we stand with you, we we support you, and we love you, Absolutely. and we uh, we claim you as 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 ours. Um, but to bring it back to people, John, I want to ask you. Um, this is it. This is our John section. John, are you happy? Well, uh, I would say absolutely. Um, I would say uh, I am in the healthiest physical state I've ever been in, uh, maybe since high school. Uh, I have a fantastic marriage uh, to my wife, Margie. We've been married 27, 28 years. I, I'm a better husband than I've ever been. I'm a better father. My kids are all kind of adults now and they are figuring out life and we have closer friendships than we've ever had before. Most of them are ex-Mormons or post-Mormons. I, I have meaningful work. I love what I do. I get paid um, for what I, I get to. I get to be paid to do what I love and it's deeply meaningful to me. Um, and so, yeah, I feel I kind of feel on top of the world. I kind of have to pinch myself. But I have to say that's after, you know, a couple decades of pain and suffering and and, and um, unpacking and then rebuilding a new life. So it's been super hard. It's been painful. But uh, yes, I feel like I'm happier than I've ever been. Thanks for asking. Well, I'm just going to push back on that. Um, but you can only find true happiness in the church, right? Well, Unfortunately, again, I'm, I'm going to be calling out traits or behaviors of unhealthy people or organizations. If you are in an abusive relationship with someone who's literally abusing you, what is the most common thing you're going to hear when you when you think or talk about leaving the abuser? Do you guys know what that statement usually is? You'll never be happy without me. Yeah. I've heard and it myself. Can, what's that? I've heard it myself. I've experienced it. I'm so sorry. And <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I don't mean to call the Mormon church an abusive organization, but I will say that's an abusive thing to say for, for a church to ever tell someone you can't be healthy without me. You can't be a moral person without us. You can't be a good uh, husband or wife. You can't be a good parent. You can't raise healthy uh, children without the church. You can't be happy without us. 
flat out that's an abusive thing to say Absolutely. and it's completely false Absolutely. you know Tom, mark twain who's a who's a you know a writer from the united states was famous of saying travel is fatal to prejudice because what you learn is as soon as you go out in the big bold world beyond utah beyond your mormon circles you meet brilliant and moral atheists agnostics episcopalians christians lutherans catholics baptists muslims jews you find out that the world is full of healthy happy people of other religious traditions or secular people and you find religious people and secular people who have made a mess of their lives. The truth is you can be healthy and happy in Mormonism or out of Mormonism. Um, and that's just a fact. And, and so that's my, my long answer. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. But it's an abusive um, thing. It is an abusive thing so. for yeah. a religion to break up a family. And it's an abusive thing for a religion to tell people they can't be healthy and happy without them. Well, I think because when you tell people that, if you tell them often enough, you know, again, from being in an abusive relationship, you start to believe it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I have family members, um, you know, nieces who have left the church and, and it's been so hard on them because they felt, like you said, they, they've lost their identity. That, that's been their whole life. And suddenly they have this life out of the church and they don't know what to do with it. You know, and and where they've experienced that feeling of, um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, like I, just that whole feeling of what do I do now? Because that's been my whole life. This is what I've been taught. Absolutely. And again, like, can I be happy out, outside of the church? You know, and so they're having to go through that whole transition of trying to figure out life out with the church. Yeah, and figure identity. Absolutely. Um, but you had talked about, you know, like it's it's. There's a work to you know that's happened over these these years, and I wanted to ask you. Um, often when I'm listening to the podcast and there's there's things that you're mentioning, I think I wanna I wanna ask John more about that. And so when you were speaking the other day, a few weeks ago was it to to Mark Osland, and it, I mean fantastic. Like listen to that interview. It's one of it's one of the the best. But um. You had talked about how you had to relearn or reframe aggression, and you'd mentioned you you sort of framed your your experience of excommunication as as the, the 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 men in the room are smiling the whole time. Could you talk to us about relearning aggression? I want to make sure I understand what you mean by relearning aggression. Can you, can you, because I, yeah, you I, specifically had used the term. So, but then, you know, we sort of listened to a little bit more. And, and you, so, whenever we are really used to being passive aggressive. Um, oh. And so, you had talked about how you could be really mean to someone, but be smiling. And for that to be a really positive yes. interaction. Okay. And so, you had talked about working on that. I want to hear okay. more about that. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, as I've studied mental health, as I got my PhD in psychology, I tried to learn a lot about um, personality traits and emotional health. And one of the things, you know, it, I talked about the BITE model, B-I-T-E, unhealthy organizations, the E stands for emotion. And basically what that means is unhealthy organizations try to manipulate you using emotions. They try and instill fear in you. They try and make you feel joy and tell you that that means the church is true. And one of the things they do is they tell you 
that certain emotions are good and certain emotions are bad. And I'm here to tell you every emotion is good. Yep. You would not have uh, the emotions you have if they weren't healthy and good. Every single emotion has been given to you or has evolved within you as a species for a purpose. Happiness has a purpose. Joy has a purpose. Sadness has a purpose. Anger has a purpose. Um, rage has a purpose. All these things have healthy, constructive purposes. There's no such thing as a bad or unhealthy emotion. Now, there's absolutely unhealthy behavior or unhealthy reactions to emotions. You can react to a anger in a way that harms yourself or harms other people. So you have to draw that distinction. What what the Mormon Church has done and what high high demand religions do is they they try to demonize certain emotions. They tell you that anger is bad. They tell you that if you're feeling sad, you're doing something wrong. They tell you that if you're angry, well, that's um, that's of the adversary. That's Satan. That's the devil. Or if you get a feeling of fear, well, that means that you should stay away from something that you're exposed to. And this, whether it's intentional or not, is a very manipulative technique because sometimes let's just say that you stumble on some information about the Mormon church that you didn't know before. Yeah, it's going to be scary. You're going to feel afraid because you've been conditioned to view the world this way. And all of a sudden you're contemplating new information that might change your worldview. And of course, humans have evolved to feel fear whenever a big change might take place. But that doesn't mean that that fear is of the devil. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't continue on and learn. Just like you come out of the mother's womb, you may feel afraid. Should you go back in the mother's womb? No, you endure that fear and you keep learning and growing. Well, anger is the same type of thing. When we feel anger, it's usually because we're either sad or afraid. So there's the primary emotion of sadness or fear and then anger is an emotion, a secondary emotion that we've evolved to have that gives us power. And so let me just tell you how it works. If you feel afraid or if you feel scared, if you feel scared or sad, then that might be because you learned that your church wasn't what you thought it was. It may be because you learned that your leaders were deceiving you. It may be because you realized that you built your whole life on something that wasn't true. Well, anger emerges to do several things. It helps focus your attention. It helps get you to pay attention and to learn lessons so that you won't ever be fooled again. Anger gives you power and it gives you the energy and the strength to make important decisions that may be difficult. Maybe you need to learn more. Maybe you need to change your beliefs. Maybe you need to change your relationships with others or with an organization. Anger can sometimes give you the power and the strength to make difficult choices. And it can communicate to people who have harmed you that you don't ever want to be harmed again. But if the church teaches you that anger is bad and evil and of the devil, they're keeping you weak, they're keeping you submissive, and they're keeping you subdued in a place where they can continue to exert undue influence on you. And so that's that's just, you know, some basic 
Mormon Emotions 101, where that translates to kind of passive aggressive stuff is you've got all these men and women raised in Mormonism where fear and sadness and anger are forbidden emotions. And so you'll see all these people that are that put on a face, they put on a mask at church. And it's like, I'm happy. I'm happy, everybody. Uh, life is great. The Mormonism's great. The church is great. The church is true. We're all happy. See, we're all happy. And if somebody says something scary or bad, or or if, or if you have fear, it's like, I'm not afraid. And, it, and if Peter Bleakley gives an amazing podcast, speaking truth, dropping truth bombs all over the UK, you've got these leaders who say, we're not afraid. We love you, Peter Bleakley. We think you're great. Uh, it, can you come into a disciplinary council? We have to talk to you. And then Peter's going to go to this disciplinary council and the leaders are going to go, Hi, Peter. We sure love you. We sure love you and your family. Now we're going to commit one of the most socially and psychologically violent acts that we could ever do to anybody. We're going to excommunicate you from your church, cut you off from your community. We're going to send you to the Mormon equivalent of hell. And we're going to do it the whole time with this fake plastic smile where we tell you that we love you the whole time. And that is not healthy on any level. Um, and and there's a there's a woman named Margaret Toscana who was excommunicated uh, in 1993 1994 here in the United States, and she described the experience as being raped by Care Bears. Care Bears were these happy little teddy bear creatures yeah. that had cartoons in the 90s, and and these Mormon leaders are saying, "My, we love you, Margaret. We love you, Sister Margaret. Is there anything we can do for you and your family?" We sure value you and let us stick a knife in your back and twist it. And so that's unhealthy emotional literacy within the Mormon context. And it's something you have to unlearn and you have to learn as a as a progressive or post-Mormon how to set boundaries, how to tell people no, how to embrace your fear, how to embrace your anger, how to use those things to your advantage, and how to put the church in its proper place, and then how to reclaim your life and to use your sadness, your depression, your anger to motivate you to make the changes so that you can heal and grow and live a happy, healthy, productive life in or out of the church that's kind of the work, some of the work that you need to do when you have a faith crisis. I, I want to just um, maybe put a fine point on the fact that I'm aware that people will listen to this thinking, you know, this is this is sounding, you know, like maybe someone's just really mad at church leaders and, and it's just, a, you know, these are somehow just expressions. I am really struck by the fact that when you were speaking, um, I know that you were speaking that that was your experience. That that's how you experienced this uh, process that's supposed to be done with love. Um, I, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I'm so sorry that um, that you're not the only person that that's happened to. Um, I, um, Thank you. I, 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 I feel like um, when, when I think about anger, I, I know that when, when I am very angry it's it's a it's quite an alien um emotion for me but when i'm Which feeling isn't very often i was going to say it's <laughs> so rare i know i'm such a little ball of patience um <laughs> and um you know that when i'm not um not that patient person when i'm angry um yeah it, it, it's perceived I, i'm aware that although no one's ever said it, it's perceived by my church leaders that i'm somehow not spiritually doing very well um 
when you know we, we've had a week of sort of or, or months of trying to battle for support for a child and um, all sorts of things are going on there I just you know it, it's being told that the anger or rage that I feel is not um it is is rejected by God when it feels like it's all God you know this is what I've needed to motivate to be able to draw boundaries and things like that so thank you for speaking to that Mm -hmm. um I mean are you are you comfortable talking about how you've applied that in your life are are you are you comfortable to to share how, how you've you've you know reframed that I'm thinking about, you know, like if we have, you know, conflict in our marriage, if we are, if we are having interactions with anyone, switching off the fact that I'm not arguing with my church leader here anymore. You know, it's quite, it's quite difficult to, to reframe a way that we were communicating for this whole time. So how, how has that looked for you? So the, the, the biggest way that that played out in my, in my personal life was my wife, Margie is very emotionally in tuned. She's very um, astute. She's very personal. She's very warm. Um, she's an amazing human. And for the first 17 years of our marriage, she was seeking from me what what I now call emotional intimacy. She wanted vulnerability. She wanted connection. She wanted me to tell her my fears, my deepest, darkest secrets, what make me sad, what made me happy. Um, she wanted emotional connection. And uh, I didn't know what she was asking for. I was always like, I'm great. I'm great. I'm earning a living. I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I'm serving in the church. Everything's great. What's wrong? Let's go watch some TV. Let's go on a hike. I'm a man. I'm strong. I'm not sad. I'm never sad. I don't get emotional. I'm good. I'm happy. I'm positive. And that was not good for a healthy marriage. It turns out that when you project perfection and when you project, um, you know, only positivity, uh, it doesn't make people feel closer to you. It makes people feel like they don't get you. Can I really trust you? Are you too perfect? Are you unstable? What, if, if anybody's ever like started crying in front of you and pouring their heart out, What does that make you feel? It draws you to them. It makes you love them more. It makes you trust them more versus somebody who's always seemingly got a mask on. And I was doing that in my own marriage. And it wasn't until about 2012 when my marriage almost ended where I realized that what Margie needed from me was emotional vulnerability. She wanted me to tell her my deepest, darkest secrets, things I had been hiding, things I had been pretending about. Um, ways that I was afraid. She wanted me to be vulnerable. And that way she could uh, understand me more, see me more clearly, love me and feel like I, she was as flawed as, as flawed as I was and vice versa. And that we were in this together as kind of part partners and imperfection working towards being healthier and happier. And by the way, that bled into my relationship with my kids where I'm always the strong dad. I'm always the positive dad. Oh, something's wrong. Everything's great. Everything's going to be great. I'm great. Everything. We need to be positive. Well, that's not what kids want or need. They want a parent that's like, Hey, I understand you're having a hard time. I'm so sorry. I don't have all the answers. Can I just be with you? And, and instead of trying to solve every problem, Can I just sit with you in your pain and your sadness and accept you, accept what you're going through, not try and fix it, 
but just unconditionally love you and be in this experience with you. That's what my kids needed. Not this perfect, positive, happy, so strong all the time, dad. Um, it wasn't modeling a healthy emotional awareness. And so when I say I'm a better husband and a better dad now than I've ever been, it's because I've followed the, the teachings of secular Buddhism or Brene Brown, where I've become vulnerable with Margie. Uh, I've, I've been more interested in her vulnerabilities. I'm, I'm more on the level of my adult children. And now when I show weakness or sadness to my children, it makes them love and care for me more versus feeling off put and unable to relate to that strong, perfect macho dad that I was trying to be as a Mormon father for way too long. Yeah. That's a, that's a overview. Yeah. No, I, love I love that, that um, because like, that's something like Jane will speak to, like, obviously going back to what you're saying about, you know, the anger, like Jane will tell you, like, I struggled with that. If I became angry, I was so hard on myself because I'm like, it's not good to be angry. And obviously it took a mental health professional to help me realize that health, uh, anger is a normal emotion and it's okay to be angry, but like you say, it's how you react to it. But when you were talking about being that vulnerable, like that's something that I try now having a different perspective on things. And I have done for most of my daughter's life. Um, she's eight now. I, you know, going back years ago, I would have been like, I can't let my daughter see me cry. I can't let her see me being. But now I realize that it's okay for my child to see me cry. Now, obviously having mental health and having struggles, my daughter has seen me probably at almost my worst, which, you know, sometimes I wish I could change, but I, I also feel it's a positive for her because she can see that it's okay to feel this way. It's healthy emotions that sometimes you're going to cry. Sometimes you're going to be sad. Sometimes you're going to be angry. And so I, I try to bring that in. Not, I don't just go out my way to show my daughter me being sad all the time, but if it happens, I don't beat myself up the way that I used to, because I realize it's all part of healthy, normal everyday life. Um, you know, and it's not something that we should be saying, you know, like I tried to help her to realize, you know, she's feeling a bit nervous about something on Monday. And I said, and that's okay that you're feeling nervous. That's, that's part of life. You're going to be nervous, anxious. Um, and that's something I've tried to instill with my daughter is to show that these emotions are healthy. So let's stay with emotions for just, just a moment. Again, I'm going to refer back to a podcast, Dr. Dillon. You had talked about whenever people convert to the church, that it's, there's an emotional conversion and that whenever people leave the church, there's an emotional deconversion. Could you maybe speak to that? Could you maybe talk a bit more about what that looks like and how that plays out? Yeah, I, I, um, there, there's a really good book called The Righteous Mind by an author named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Hello. Um, and in, in The Righteous Mind, we learn that humans are primarily emotional creatures, that our amygdala, our emotional center of our brain, overrides the, the rational or, or cognitive or intellectual part of our brain when, uh, when one is fighting against the other. It gives the uh, it gives the example of a rider like a human on top of an elephant. If a rider and an elephant are scared and they're both scared, who wins? In terms of like where where they're going to go, who wins? Well, if they're both scared, then no one wins, right? Well, it, it, let's say a human wants to go this way okay. and an elephant oh, wants to go that way, and they're both yeah. scared. 
Who yeah, wins? Yeah, the elephant's going to win. Yeah, the elephant's going to win if if a human, and that's the way our brain is. Emotions, if if intellect and emotions are in conflict, unless you're really really centered and you're really healthy and really mature, nine times out of ten, the emotion is always going to win over the intellect, and that's just how we're wired. Humans arrive at decisions emotionally. We think we're rational. We think we're logical, but more often than not. We arrive at decisions emotionally and then use evidence through confirmation bias. We cherry pick the evidence that confirms uh, the decisions we arrived at emotionally. And if you don't believe me, then just try and talk to an Orthodox Mormon about Joseph Smith's polygamy or Book of Mormon historicity. They don't care about evidence. They're going to say, I had this feeling where I felt the Book of Mormon was true and all the evidence you provide, it's not going to even penetrate my brain because I had that feeling. That's just the perfect example. Now you flip that, um, you're going to have people that no longer believe the Book of Mormon's true. It doesn't matter what evidence you provide them. They're going to say, I, Mormons hurt me. I don't believe the church is true. I don't care what evidence you give me. I'm not going to listen. And so that's just the way we work. And so conversion, you know, it may be that there's these missionaries that are talking about Joseph Smith or, or the Book of Mormon or whatever. But the way conversion really happens is it's usually like, oh, I had a death in the family. I'm missing my mom or my dad. Will I ever see them again? Or, oh, wow, I'm really alone and I'm sad and I'm afraid and I have no community to support me. And then these missionaries come and they talk to us about a loving Heavenly Father and they talk to us about a loving ward faith community and a Jesus that loves us. And we start feeling, oh, my gosh. Maybe I won't be alone. Maybe I can see my mom and dad again who have died. Maybe I can have this ward community that will love me. And these missionaries show up and bring you treats and they bring you to church and everybody loves you. And you feel overwhelming emotions. And, and they even call it the Holy Ghost. But it's the emotions that are converting you to Mormonism. And the words are kind of secondary. It's how you feel. People don't care about what you think until they know uh, how you feel or, or, or until they make you feel really good about your experience. And so I, and so even, even when I, when I got my testimony, it wasn't from reading scriptures. It wasn't from something I learned. It was from the love that my ward community shared with me. It was from these emotional experiences that I had as a teenager, as I was contemplating the meaning of life and do I matter and, what is what happens when we die? I had these overwhelming emotional experiences that then the church taught me to interpret or encode as the Holy Ghost bearing witness that the church is true. So I believe that conversion is very much an emotional experience for converts or for people born in the church. And if you flip it, I think that's also true for losing your faith in the church or leaving it. It's like, huh, someone that I love no longer believes, and I love them and trust them. I wonder why. Or, oh, wow, Peter Bleakley, he seems so smart, and he seems so sincere. Why would the church be excommunicating him? Or Natasha Helfer, she's been spending her whole life promoting mental health, and now the church is excommunicating her? That doesn't make sense. Or, man, my child is gay, and they want to end their own life. And the church is teaching them that they're broken and fallen. That feels awful. I don't want to lose my child. Hmm, maybe the church isn't what I thought it was. And so we, we, we experience emotions 
converting to the church, and it's usually emotions that that end up leading us out of the church as well. Sometimes it's just I'm not happy. I'm living the Mormon life. I served the mission. I obeyed the commandments. I got married in the temple. I've had all these kids. I'm serving in my calling, and I'm depressed. I'm miserable. What's going on here? I thought that that the gospel was the plan of happiness, and I'm depressed and sad and broken. That can be an impetus to someone finding the CES letter and all of a sudden listening to 21st century, 21st century saints or, or Mormon war or Nemo, um, you know, the YouTube channel or, or any of these things. It's usually emotion that converts us and that deconverts us. I love that. And okay. You know, since we, since we bring um, the, the names of some of the, uh, as Peter has, has dubbed us the Brit Avengers, since we brought some of the Brit Avengers up in our conversation, then let's bring it back to what's going on in the UK. What are your thoughts on how this situation with what we can definitely see as a dying church here, how can it be fixed? Should it be fixed? Those are my two questions. And I'm also okay. interested in the chat. If you guys want to share in the chat what your thoughts are on that, I would love to hear it. So I, um, I'm different than a lot of my friends who have left the church in that I, I have had very positive experiences as a Mormon. My Mormon upbringing was beautiful in so many ways and powerful. And even after I lost my faith in the church, I loved the church and my lived experience in the church so much that I stayed. So I don't look at the Mormon church as 100% evil. I don't look at it as 100% bad. And my heart breaks that the church is going through what it's going through in the UK, in Texas, in Utah, throughout the world, because so much good has come from the Mormon experience. When I listen to Peter Bleakley's Mormon Civil War, I hear in him this sadness that the Mormon church was such a beautiful, healthy part of so many UK saints for so many decades, and that now it's losing its vitality, it's breaking apart, and it's not going to be to future UK Mormons or saints <clears throat> what it has been, what it was for Peter, and what it has been for so many saints in the UK for so long. That is sad. That's sad to me. I am sad that the church that I loved, the church that I've had so many happy experiences with, is facing this crisis. I don't want that to happen. I want the stake dances, the road shows, the, the temple trips, the, the seminary experiences, the, the BYU experiences, all of it, raising my family. I want... I want to be able, I, I want to see the church heal and grow. I want to see people to be able to have healthy, happy Mormon experiences in the future, in the UK and elsewhere. And I'm super sad that that's in jeopardy. Now, I do have to acknowledge that part of the reason I have had such an amazing Mormon experience is privilege. I am like the church was made for me. I am white. I am male. I am, you know, educated. I am upper middle class. I'm from, you know, from the United States and I'm straight. I am cisgender. Like I am all, I, the church was made for me. 
and I was made for the church. And so that's probably why I had such an amazing experience. If I had been a woman, if I had been gay, lesbian, transgender, if I had been a person of color, if I had been poor, uneducated, if I had been outside the United States, there's a chance I could have had a very different experience. And so I just want to acknowledge that privilege, first of all. But I want to say I am sad. I grieve with you guys and everyone else that the church is in the situation. I absolutely don't want to see the Mormon church die with one huge caveat and asterisk. One more divorce is unacceptable within a Mormon context if it's the church that's causing the divorce. One more person dying by suicide, LGBTQ or other, is unacceptable. One more day of the church misleading people and deceiving people about its history is unacceptable. This culture of uh, deception and hiding and dishonesty, of of uh, shaming people for their sexuality, of of breaking up families, it 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 is it is now that we have all the information, which we do, which we didn't in the '70s, we didn't in the '60s, we didn't in the '80s. Now we do. And what did the church teach us? What did I learn from the Mormon Church? Do what is right, let the consequence follow, right? Dare to do right, dare to be true. You have a work that no other can do. I learned that as a Mormon. And so the answer to the Mormon church is found within the Mormon hymns, which is do what is right, Mormon church. Let the consequence follow. Truth matters remember the hymn oh say what is truth tis the fairest gem that the riches of world can produce we the mormon church there's only one answer it needs to be honest about its history it needs to come clean about the harm that it's caused it needs to follow its own steps of repentance and it needs to um apologize for the people it's harmed, apologize for the LGBT people it's harmed, apologize for the women it's harmed, the racist teachings. It needs to apologize for the people it's excommunicated, and it needs to apologize for misleading and deceiving people. That's hard, okay? And yes, the Mormon church is going to lose people, but it's losing people now. Yes. It's losing people now, and it's losing its own credibility. And so what it needs to do is stop excommunicating people. It needs to be honest, come clean, apologize. Here's the good news. The Mormon church is now sitting on a war chest of over 130 billion U.S. dollars. And you know what? There's a lot it can do with $130 billion. It can create educational programs, literacy programs, youth programs. It can create a new curriculum. It can do... It can learn the best mental health principles and and experiment on creating wards and stakes that are based on truth, not on lies, that are based on mental health, not on, um, you know, disastrous principles, healthy sexuality, not unhealthy sexuality, um, equality, not racism, sexism and homophobia. It will not be the church that it was. It may lose a lot of people like Community of Christ or the Reorganized Church has, but number one, it will be doing the right thing. Yeah. And number two, it will be swapping out what we have, you know, you remember that primary song, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? What we've learned by 2021 is that the Mormon church has been built on sand all along. We just didn't know it. And, and the church is going to 
is going to melt into the sand unless it replaces the sand with a solid foundation. And that's truth, that's evidence, that's science, that's courage, that's kindness, and that's integrity. Once the church does, it will lose members, but it can then start to experiment and play with its $130 billion and find new models of creating community, of creating members that um, are healthy and that have more healing and joy. And who knows, maybe it'll dip, but, but who's to say it can't rebound? You know, $130 billion can do a lot. You can do a lot with $130 billion these days. Yeah, you can build shopping malls, right? Yeah, yeah, right now they're building shopping malls. They're just investing it, investing it, investing it. Right now the church doesn't need tithing. So literally, you just invest $130 billion, you get 7% interest on average. You've got eight, nine billion dollars annually of a budget that's never gonna shrink. You can fund your operations without one cent of tithing. So the good news is the church doesn't have to worry about losing members, about tithing declining. It can just start investing in programs that add value to people's lives, and maybe it'll rebound and become the healthy, happy thing that it was, or even healthier or happier. I think that's the only way, and I, I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think that's the right thing to do, and I think Absolutely. that's the only way for the church to not lose all credibility um, in the 21st century. Alana, there's a question that's come up yeah, on the screen that I'm, I'm going to get you. If you could just bookmark that for a second, because I'd like you to, I'd, I'd like us to come back to that in a, in a moment. Um, but the things that you're talking about, Dr. Dillon, are things that we are very aware of in the British Isles and that some of us have started podcasts to try and, to, to try and address, um, to, uh, you know, feel like as an act of integrity that we're, we're doing all we can to, um, be the church that we we set out to be as members. Um, these podcasters and your podcast, I mean, it's how is this likely to play out? Um, was there a way, do you think, back when you first started Mormon Stories that your leaders could have saw a positive? and saw your work as something that could enrich our faith? The truth is no. Um, there, there's, a, there's a saying, I studied, I studied Mahatma Gandhi, uh, and you know, obviously you guys probably know the history better than me, that the, that the British Empire at one time controlled a lot of the world. The sun didn't set on the British Empire, and of course it controlled India. And Gandhi led a civil rights movement within India to break free. And there's this, um, and and uh, and and of course Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil led the civil rights movement in the United States for people of color, were inspired by Mahatma Gandhi. And there's this quote that I learned from Martin Luther King, which is, "Power never relinquishes itself voluntarily; it must be forced." There's nobody that wakes up and says, "I mean, it's super rare." For someone to just say, I know I have all this power. I know all this money. I'm just going to give it all the way and become weaker and, and less powerful and less influential. That just doesn't happen. And the church, to make changes, let's be clear, it will lose a ton of its membership. It'll lose a ton of its power. And it will lose future money. It won't lose the money that it has, but it will lose future money that it could receive. That's the bad news. And the truth is the church 
was never going to just lie over and apologize and admit all its problems and change. That's just not how humans are. And that's not how organizations work. So now we're to the point of it must be forced. So whether it's the September 6th or Mormon Stories and me or Jeremy Runnels or Bill Real or Radio Free Mormon or Nemo or um, 21st Century Saints Live or um, Mormon Civil War, Peter Bleakley, the church is being forced. Jeremy Runnels in the CES letter, the church is being forced to change by bad publicity, by the internet, by these podcasts, by the CES letter, and by bad publicity, and by all the people voting with their feet. One thing we didn't tell you, one thing we didn't mention is, in the United States, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the youth raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are leaving the church by the time they're in their 20s. We're losing 50 to 80% of our youth here in the United States. I can't imagine what it's like there. That is forcing the church to change. And so just like when Martin Luther King Jr. started having these protests where he would have all these people march and then the racist police officers would throw them all in jails and throw them all in jails. Guess what happened? They threw so many people in jail that the prisons were full and they couldn't put more people in the jails. And that's kind of analogous of what's going to happen. They're going to keep excommunicating people. They're going to keep trying to silence people. And they're going to see more and more and more and more people leave. And as the numbers get bigger and bigger, bigger, and the church starts to shrink and shrink and shrink, and the church goes from a, from a fast-growing church to a barely-growing church, which is where it's now, to a, to a rapidly declining church, except in Africa, that's a little asterisk, that's going to be what forces the church to change. And once that happens, it may be in five years, it may be in 10 years, it may be in 20 years, it's going to be a miracle. You're going to see apologies. You're going to see women getting the priesthood. You're going to see people of color, uh, the church apologizing for its racism. You're going to see LGBT people being brought into full fellowship. You're going to see all that and more, um, but you're going to, going to see it after a lot more people get excommunicated uh, and a lot, a lot, a lot more people leave the church. But it will happen, and it will be the pioneers like Peter Bleakley, like Tom Phillips, like Douglas Stilgo, like Jeremy Runnels, like 21st Century Saints Live, like Jane, like Alana, that will have contributed to the change. So you are leading it right now on 21st Century Saints Live. And uh, I'm really humbled and impressed and inspired by what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, do you want to take us to, to Susan's question, Alana. Yep. So Susan is saying, John, if the church did apologize for all those things, including for all those people they excommunicated, would you rejoin? So uh, here's what I would have to do. This Here's what the church would have to do for me to rejoin. The church would have to um, acknowledge that it's not the one and only true church they would have to acknowledge that the Book of Mormon is a 19th century work of creative fiction that's inspired. I'll, I'll keep it. I'm okay with them saying that it's still inspired. They would have to acknowledge the Book of Abraham as a mistranslation. They would have to um, become fully open and transparent about its history without uh, using deceptive apologetics to mislead and deceive by recontextualization. They would have to give women the priesthood. 
Uh, they would have to let LGBTQ people into full fellowship. They would have to stop excluding people from uh, Mormon weddings and temple ceremonies. They would have to let uh, non-members attend Mormon, Mormon weddings and temple ceremonies. They would have to fully accept transgender people into the church and no longer punish them and excommunicate them. Uh, they would have to create a space for progressive and or non-believing people within the church to remain in full fellowship, which means they would have to change the temple recommend ceremony such that um, non-believers or progressive believers weren't excluded from the top rituals of the church. And yes, they would have to uh, no longer excommunicate or disfellowship people just for speaking the truth. And they would have to apologize for all these things. If the church were to do all that, uh, then yes, I would absolutely consider rejoining the church, but I would do so not as a literal believer, not as someone who believes the Book of Mormon was historical or that this is the one true church. I would be saying, hey, this is a community I want to be a part of. I, I, I want to live a good life. I want to do life within this community. But all these, these uh, orthodox faith propositions would, would not be a part of why I would join. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, John, I feel like we're, we're going to wrap it up, but I feel like um, I, I, we just really want to thank you for all the work that, that you continue to do within the, the broad spectrum that is the Mormon community and post-Mormon community. Um, can I ask what, what have, what's been your favorite episodes? What, what, are your, what are your big standout Mormon stories interviews? Well, I do want to say that I've absolutely loved interviewing people um, from the UK. So whether that's, you know, Tom Phillips or Nathan Lisko or Alex Winters or Stephen Bloor or Sean Coombs or Karen Adam or Douglas Stilgo or this interview today, the, I love these. these. These interviews are all very near and dear to my heart as someone whose ancestry comes from the UK. Um, of course, my interview with Michael Coe, world-famous Yale-trained Mesoamerican archaeologist who was able to give a non-Mormon view of Book of Mormon historicity and origins. That's that's certainly a top five episode. My Tom Phillips episode is definitely a top five. Someone who's reached such heights in the church, who's willing to be open and honest about his experiences and face deep consequences as a result. Um, my, my, uh, my interviews with Hans and Brigitte Madsen, neighbors uh from sweden who were area authority hans was an area authority who also received the second anointing to be able to talk to him and brigitte several times and talk about their experiences that one's near and dear to my heart um i would have to say um my interview with uh book of abraham uh expert i'm sorry egyptologist uh robert rittner he yeah. is uh his health is failing now he may not be with us long on this earth his willingness to sit down with us for 13 hours to go into depth on the, the papyra and the tra the translation of the book of Abraham and to tell us what the papyra really says and to tell us that Joseph Smith was not being truthful or accurate when he claimed to have translated those papyra into what we now say is the book of Abraham. That was an act of courage on the part of Robert Rittner as an act of love. And I really respect that. But I also really respect the faithful Mormons that have come on. Richard Bushman, Claudia Bushman, um, Terrell and Fiona Givens. There are so many faithful Mormons that have come on Mormon stories. Recently, I did a series um, with uh, Jim Bennett, 
It's this, it's this faithful, believing Mormon that was willing to address all the issues in the CES letter and still say, hey, I still believe. That Believe it or not, that inspires me. I love people to come on and speak their truth and, and, and to have different points of view. So there have just been so many wonderful uh, interviews. It's hard to name them. We're now almost up to 2,000 hours of interviews on Mormon Stories podcast. But uh, these are some of my favorites. I love that. Um, I I know that the interview that that you referred to with Robert Rettner. I mean, I I I use the the uh, the whole set of of, uh, of church scriptures that that we have access to, and I found it fascinating. This stuff is so interesting. You know, like I mean, I, without having to qualify it with anything, this stuff is amazing. Um, so yeah, those were great interviews. Hey, Alana, have, have you got a favourite? <laughs> yeah, if sorry, you didn't already notice, John, I got a little bit excited when you mentioned someone's name, um, and that was Hans Matson. Um, obviously, I didn't know that the Swedish Rescue was a thing until I came across it, and Jane had pointed me to your podcast. I, I don't know what it is. I just, I think I just love the man. Like he's, he's quite funny. He's quite quirky, you know. And I just think he's just such a, a humble man you know and you can you can hear from what he says that it all comes from a good place mm-hmm. um like i've said that Jane, i don't know what it is but i just absolutely love um that interview it's got to be one of my favorites am i allowed to say that he's your mormon crush <laughs> madison is your mormon crush <laughs> you're not supposed to tell people that but i'll let you off <laughs> since you're my bestie but thankfully you won't mention mine that's i totally will yeah but also yeah. we i think what we're experiencing is a is a british in that, I mean, uh, a British rescue, like you guys, you know, w- what led to the Swedish rescue? It was Hans Matson and a bunch of other Swedish Mormons getting together, finding their power, learning the truth, and then being willing to congregate and to meet and to talk about it. And I'm telling you that the British rescue is on the horizon <laughs> and, and, uh, you guys are leading the way Douglas, Peter, you guys, Sunstone UK, I can tell you right now that uh, the Mormon church leadership and the area presidency over there in Western Europe, they're um, dropping bricks, I will say uh, politely. <laughs> they are afraid. They are terrified. And the good news is they're, they're, they're terrified of something beautiful. What you guys are doing, you are soldiers for truth. You are soldiers for health. Your soldiers for healing and growth, for equality. And all you're doing, all Peter's doing, all Douglas is doing, all you guys are doing is trying to help your church be better. And you're trying to help Mormons in the UK live happier and healthier lives. And so you will get persecuted. You will get punished. But you are on the side of truth. You are on the right side of history. And you will be written about in 10, 20, 30, 50 years as pioneers, a different type of Mormon pioneers, but you guys are pioneers in helping the British saints move to places of of truth and of healing and of growth. And it's inspiring for us to watch on the other side of the pond. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to ask this question that Graham has, uh, has posted on our Facebook page. What has been the most significant spiritual experience in John's life since his disaffection and excommunication from the LDS church. 
That's a great question. Thanks, Graham. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've met Graham. Uh, hi, Graham. Uh, so, and by the way, I want to say I've made a couple trips to the UK where I've met with listeners and with members of the church there and former members. And those are some of my happiest memories of my life. Um, and so I hope to be able to come back sometime and and see you all again and see this new crop of, uh, of, of UK Mormons and ex-Mormons. But anyway, I have redefined, I have... I have developed a deeper understanding for me of what the term spirituality means. In the past, I thought spirituality meant being visited by a ghost, a spirit that then comes into your body and turns on the tingly warm feelings in your body and then testifies to you of some sort of truth. That's how I used to think of the term spirituality. And so I want to say, I don't believe that that is a, a, a that's not, how I think of spirituality now, that's not what spirituality means to me. So I have to define the term before I answer it. For me, spirituality means getting a deep sense of, of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction where the hair stands up on my arms, the tingling goes down the back of my neck. I feel excited. I feel happy. I feel energized. Getting those feelings from not some fictitious ghost that enters into my body, but from being connected to fellow humans in some sort of endeavor that is meaningful and useful and constructive. And so for me, and I'm not lying, I mean this very truthfully, every day is 16 is a 16 hour spiritual experience for me. And if you if you don't believe me, look at how I'm behaving right now. Like I am on fire. This is who I am. I am no different when I'm home. I'm it doesn't mean I don't have bad days. It doesn't mean I'm not sad sometimes or I don't lose my temper. But every day is a massive spiritual experience for me because every day I get to meet with people like you. I get to meet with other people who are um, at various stages of their journey. I get to help save marriages. I get to help save lives. I get to help LGBT people learn that they're perfect and happy and healthy as they are. I get to help families reunite and become stronger. And I am part of this big, beautiful movement of progressive and post-Mormonism where people are learning truth, gaining their own power, moving the, the focus of power from their external source to their own internal source of power, and then healing and growing and building new community. That is spirituality for me now. It gets me excited. It wakes me up every day, and it gives me meaning and purpose. And uh, it's fun, and it's joyful. And, and so doing this for the past 16 years by far has been the most spiritual thing of my life. Better than any temple trip I made as a Mormon, better than any testimony meeting or sacrament meeting, better than any youth conference, better than any general conference talk I ever heard. Doing this work has been the most uh, spiritually edifying thing of my life. In addition to being a husband and father, those things are also uh, super amazing. So to take us out then, um, do you have any um, any final words that you would like to share with the whole Mormon, post-Mormon community, particularly in the United Kingdom? Yes, you are perfect. You are strong. You are uh, you are a lion rising uh, in in the West, so to speak. You have uh, you you are smart. 
you are courageous and you have strength in community. Um, there was this point in the Gandhi movie where a British journalist says to Gandhi, Hey, how do I help you? And the, the Gandhi says to the British journalist, you can go home now. And the British journalist was like, wait, what a minute, I'm here to help you. And he's like, we need to do this ourselves. You know, Bill Real and, and RFM and me and Lindsay Anson Park and others, we've served our purpose. What's powerful now is that you guys are rising on your own, gaining your own voices, gaining your own power, forging your own communities. And I would much rather have British Mormons listening to British people than British Mormons listening to American Yanks, right? So you're beautiful, you're brilliant, you're rising, you're strong, you're articulate. By the way, you're teaching us. I was just on, a, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little story. My wife and I were on a hike the other day and we're stopped by a friend and this friend you know, says, hey, John and Margie, it's so great to see you. And we ask our friend what she's been doing. And you know what she says? She says, I've been listening to Mormon Civil War by this guy named Peter Bleakley over in the UK. And that's on a trail at, at Mill Creek in the heart of Salt Lake City, Utah. You guys are now not only taking from us, you're giving to us. And it's so inspiring. And that's why I wanted to come on this podcast because we have a lot to learn from you and we're excited. So not only are you building up to support yourselves, now you're giving back across the pond and to the rest of the world. And all I have to say is you're brilliant, you're beautiful, you're funny, you're witty, we need you and keep going strong, keep building community. Excommunication doesn't matter. This fellowship, it doesn't matter. What matters is truth, healing, growth, community. Keep building it. And the world is just going to be brighter there. And it's going to be brighter here. And the sun will never set on Mormon awakening and Mormon enlightenment. And that's what uh, you guys are helping bring about. Thank you. We are going to put all of the links down to all of the the um, the shows and podcasts that uh, that you need to be aware of for the British Isles. The stuff that Nemo is doing is incredible. Um, the stuff that that Mormon Civil Civil War and Peter's doing is. Uh, it, do you know what, guys? Show him your support. Um, you can find out more about what's going on with him and his impending um, church disciplinary council. Um, what else? We've got Sunstone UK, where excellent work has been done. We want to shout out to Julian and Laura Heath who are doing great stuff there. Um, so we'll put lots of links in the show notes. But um, before we let you go, um, Dr. Dylan, what we just wanted to to say as um as your friends, as um you know pe people who are are we are really closely affiliated to the church, and we just wanted to make sure that you know that we love you, that we appreciate your work, that we bless your work, and that we want to to bless your journey, um and to thank you for it. Um, so thank you so much for your time tonight, Dr. Dylan. Thank you. Thank you so okay, much. Uh, we're gonna sorry, Dr. Do you want to do you want to close us out with some final words before we end the stream? Jane, thank you. Alana, thank you. Bless you both. Bless all you guys in the UK. Um, I can't wait to see the good things that come from what you guys are all doing. So love you guys. And I hope to come visit. Um Oh, that Let's would be make amazing. That happen. We must. We absolutely. Well, thank you again, everyone. And don't forget to like and subscribe. We'll see you all in the next episode. Good night. Bye, guys.